Hello, this is James Emmett, the editor of 451 and the writer-illustrator of the committee from Wayward Raven. Adrian, you are awesome and have given us all a ton of issues, am I right? (laughs) Sorry. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. This will be the third release that we've done in 2019, but this will be the first interview that I've done in 2019. The first episode that we did, 132, was between me and my girlfriend slash producer Eileen. The second time, you were just stuck with me, but for anybody who was like, well, is this guy ever going to do interviews again? Well, have no fear. Uh, We are back, and I actually think this is a really great one to start off with. You guys know I was a big fan of this book when the first edition released, Spencer and Locke. This comic answers this question that you didn't even think you even wanted to ask was, what if you took Calvin and Hobbes and had them grow up in Frank Miller's Sin City? And this is really gritty, touching, just really bizarre, but incredible miniseries. You know, if you're a fan of like crime noir and also just comic strip characters, it was a really great mashup of so many different elements and properties. And I had such a great time talking to David Pepos about it. Uh, he is a Ringo Award nominated writer, uh, film, television, and comics. And we had such a great time talking last time. So we're doing it again. But this time we are also joined by the Ringo Award nominated co-creator Spencer and Locke. George Santiago Jr. So we're going to get into now Spencer and Lock 2. And like any sequel, the stakes are higher. There's more danger. So we're going to get right into it. So David, George, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. George, this is your first time on the show, and I know we did speak a little bit about the origins of the book, so I figured I'd start off by getting things from your perspective and your thoughts on Spencer and Locke. What was it about the story that drives you and really inspires you to then make a second version of this? David approached me after, uh, like when I was about to graduate from school, I got my master's degree from the Savannah College of Art and Design, and um, David emailed me and he's like, hey, I have an idea for a thing. Would you want to work on it? And I was really into crime movies and crime fiction at the time because like this was a lot of stuff that, you know, my like my parents were not cool with me watching The Godfather as they should have been at that age. <laughs> so I was going back and rewatching all of these like sort of classic crime movies. And because I, I wanted to try to find a way to get in on that. Like, I feel like crime crime stories and crime fiction like film noir like they have such like a rich like visual narrative and like storytelling appeal that i wanted to study it Uh, i'm one of those kind of creators where i want to um i want to try a little of everything and so i was studying a lot of this stuff and then david had the idea and i was like oh that, that that sounds like fun like i'm kind of a goofy person and so the concept of it it sounded like okay like this is like a way for us to have like sort of the the grittiness of like a of like a Godfather's type story, but then have like sort of a tongue in cheek comedy aspect to it as well. And like I think that those stories are usually the one those those are the best. Those are the ones that can like the ones that, the stories that can make you laugh are also the ones that can make you cry. I feel that um, with uh, book two because the first series was so well received that I felt that with book two we could raise those stakes even higher, not just for the characters, but also for for the readers. Because now people that have read the first volume, they already, I think, care about Spencer and Locke and Hero and all these other characters that now we get to play with their emotions even more in a sequel because <laughs> now they're invested. It's like, okay, well, now how are you going to handle these characters that you care about and want to read about? Like, ha, now, now we can get you. <laughs> I really enjoyed that first series and like the overall premise is so wonderfully bizarre. And, you know, we talked about this in the first episode with David where Calvin and Hobbes, while it's a very, you know, whimsical, very sort of poignant coming of age story about this boy and his stuffed animal who's kind of like his best friend, there's a certain level of darkness to it. It's, it could be very bleak at times. And I thought it was an interesting way to then take 
some of that bleakness and even some of that whimsy and put into this crime story. So I was not really expecting to be as invested and not from a, oh, this is a bad story by any means. But by the end of that first story, it's like these are fully fleshed out characters, even though one of them is an anthropomorphic blue panther who for all intents and purposes isn't even real. Mm -hmm. There's so much character, there's so much depth to Locke and then how he relates to Spencer and then just to everybody else. And something I thought was very touching were the kids who can see him and feel that he's as real as Spencer sees him. And I think that's what made that first story, like the crime element was great. You know, there's a lot of great action, very gripping, but it was grounded in something real. Thank you. I saw Spencer and Locke as kind of our evil Knievel stunt jump of a story. There were a lot of people who, rightfully so, when they heard our premise, they're like, I don't know about this. And uh, that was what we were counting on. Uh, I was fully expected to encounter some skepticism and even some pushback. And I, I welcomed it. I was like, come on, I, the louder, the better, uh, because we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to make you fall in love with these characters and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm so glad you say that about Locke. I mean, he's he's my favorite character. I, I didn't believe this idea of sort of, oh, the character just kind of speaks to you. But it was really just kind of fun getting into his head and, and exploring sort of, you know, what would his opinion be on something? Or what would his, what you know, what kind of wisecrack would he say in this situation? Watching Locke and Spencer kind of play off of one another, those were the, the most fun scenes for me to write. Uh, just hearing how people would react to these characters, uh, I mean, I was like, yes, okay, mission accomplished. And just like George said, now that we've got our hooks in you, volume two, we're, we're taking these characters to some places they haven't been before. Um, it's going to be pretty big and pretty explosive with volume two. And we've really kind of uh, doubled down on our high concept, really on an exponential level. You had long since hinted at the idea that Spencer and Locke, and having been inspired by Calvin and Hobbes, like that wouldn't be the last character from a comic strip that would be transported into this world that you've built, so to speak. Calvin and Hobbes is only the tip of the iceberg. It's been part of the plan since before the first page was drawn, that if people wanted enough of this series... We were going to go full fables with the second installment. Uh, we were going to be drawing, <laughs> just drawing inspiration from across the funny pages because, uh, you know, it, it's baked into the concept. Uh, you know, when I was a kid reading the the comic section of the St. Louis Post Dispatch, it was a whole universe on one page. Mm -hmm. So why not do that for our sequel? Uh, and so, like you said, our new villain, uh, his name is Roach Riley. He's kind of our riff on Mort Walker's Beetle Bailey. Uh, if it was a, a little Heath Ledger's Joker, a little bit of Travis Bickle from The Taxi Driver, sort of force-fed through the meat grinder of The Deer Hunter. <laughs> Holy cow. I didn't actually even think of The Deer Hunter angle until just now, but that, that fits perfectly. What character comes out the other side of that kind of unholy mixture? And uh, Roach is, uh, he's going to be... Uh, uh, Locke's worst nightmare. Um, he's he's come back. He's the sole survivor of his platoon overseas, and uh, he saw something over there. And we might say that that kind of broke him, but he might argue that the scales have fallen from his eyes. And Roach has come back uh, almost an apostle of pain and suffering, and he's come back to to spread the good word uh, in, in as violent as possible. It's very uh, sort of an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. You know, it's somebody who's faster, stronger, more heavily armed. How's Spencer not going to dig in and to, to come out on top on this one? It's going to be a tough fight for them, for sure. Something that I really appreciated about this book, especially, you know, Jerome, speaking to you, George, is the art, which is incredible. But you did something that I thought was really interesting. Certain panels where... It would be the characters almost as they would have been, you know, on a comic strip. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, having that switch back and forth to what was happening at the moment in this very realistic sense. Now with the Roach Riley character, you know, doing that with Beetle Bailey, I was like, wait a minute, I recognize his art style. I recognize these characters. I'm like, okay, this is a very familiar territory. And I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, how that then juxtaposes to <laughs> the, the version that we all end up seeing, like, it actually, like, almost shook me out. I'm like, holy cow, like, I was not expecting that to transition the way it did. 
<laughs> and the art, I think, is incredible how you managed to convey that. So I don't know if you want to really talk about Spencer and Locke 2 with Roach Riley and how your artwork brings this character to life. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of like how best to put it. I mean, it, it is the most like visually distinctive thing that, that happens in the book. But I also think that what it allows us to do is it allows us to tell a story where we don't have to like, oh, like in film noir and it, even in like in noir comics, like in like the way Rick Remender writes and like uh, and Ed Brubaker, like there's a lot of internal monologue stuff that happens in the captions. And but but what happens when you have to do flashbacks or things that are not like within the context of, you know, like, oh, okay, like, oh, there's a time skip, you know, or like, oh, here's, here's different situation. When you have captions that convey characters' thoughts and also ones that have to convey like setting, it can be a little confusing, especially for new readers. But what I think that we're, what we do in, in our book that, that works really well is by, by having these different styles, we don't have to say like, like this year, this person, this place. You know, like we, we can just have like, OK, when you see like the drawn in the cartoony style of like, like sort of patterned after Bill Watterson's comics, like, you know that, oh, this is Spencer and Locke. Like they, they, this is their childhood, you know, almost seen through like the filter of like what a child's eyes would be. And then when when, when you have like the Roach Riley uh, flashback scenes like the obvious shift in 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 how they look definitely sort of it, it clues the reader in that okay i'm i'm i understand the time frame that this takes place in and like the mindset of the characters here like this is before things went wrong you know um one of the beautiful things about the uh the the matt fraction david aja hawkeye book Oh man, one of my favorite series. Yep. So much. Yeah, fun. it's so good. And w- one of the things that they do that's really awesome in that, I think it was Matthew Hollingsworth is was the colorist on that. Yes. Yeah, like they they would switch color palettes, and like the color palette would denote the time frame, and like or, or they would have like they would have these match cuts where like oh it would be Hawkeye like sitting in a chair, and then he would have like no cuts on his face, and then the next panel would be the same shot, but he's in a different place with a different color palette, but he's covered in bruises and stuff. Like you know, the reader is able to follow along seamlessly without having to be sort of led around by the dialogue or even by like the by captions you know and like i think that 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 sort of speaks to a book that's easy to read that's easy to pick up and so i I think that the way that our book kind of shifts styles it's definitely the first thing people notice but i think it's also like sort of our 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 secret weapon for i think why people find it as immersive as as they do also, you know, I mean, when I wrote it, I was kind of afraid we'd be in comic book jail. So I was just like, oh, well, let's just throw in all the wild stuff we possibly can. Because <laughs> I was like, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get to do this again. So uh, I better I better run with this while I still can. Uh, you know, that's why we threw in so much cool, different stuff in volume one was I was just like, well, if people hate this book, at least like we have a portfolio to say, hey, you can do sci-fi. Hey, you can do car chases. Uh, you know, you can do emotional scenes. Thankfully, people seem to really like all that stuff. Yeah, I got to tell you, George is just like, he's upped his game so much since our first volume. And seeing what he delivers for volume two, I mean, boy, this, I mean, like you said, just even for the first few pages, it really takes your head off. It's, I mean, it's, it's really incredible stuff. Yeah, because like Roach Riley, visually, how he's approached, it's almost, ter- it's, it, no, it's not even almost, no, it's literally terrifying. Cause, <laughs> Thank you. Because, <laughs> you know, like I said, like I was so used to seeing, you know, him through that scope of Beetle Bailey, like this goofy comic strip I used to read as a kid, yeah. you know, in between cartoons. So then, you know, bring him, and I thought it was a really interesting choice, and that's actually what I wanted to ask both of you is, with comic strips, there are so many different characters, so many different places to go with it. What was it about Mort Walker's Beetle Bailey that said to you, this is the character we want to bring into the story as our main antagonist? Honestly, it was the first thing I thought of as an extra villain, and it was a total slam dunk. I think part of it is uh, the concept is kind of cut from a similar cloth as Spencer and Locke. You take what you'd think would be kind of a comedic strip, and you put it through this super dark lens people are going to wonder whoa like what's that going to look like uh and they're immediately going to have this kind of surprised maybe scared chuckle and they're going to wonder well what's that going to look like and will these two idiots stick the landing but 
on top of that, conceptually, it, it, it really led me to that direction. I thought a lot about what are the threats that cops face? And, you know, for our first volume, we had, a, you know, a crime syndicate, which feels very organic and it's, it's sort of an easy entry point. People kind of expect that uh, in terms of, uh, you know, action movies and the like. But, you know, what are the other threats that they face? And the idea of terrorism is, uh, you know, came to my mind really quickly. Just sort of this bigger, larger than life threat. And how are two street level cops going to face this? Right. And uh, sort of that idea of this sort of massive destruction, military ordinance. When I thought about that, well, of course, uh, the military guy, Beetle Bailey, was the first thing that came to mind. And I think there's something a little subversive about it as well, because, you know, he, he is a former soldier. And uh, we, uh, you know, instead of uh, having our flashbacks be with Spencer and Locke this time, our opening flashbacks are going to follow Roach. We're going to see exactly what turned him from this sort of uh, lovable slacker private into this nihilistic killing machine. It felt right. And the more I sort of dug into Roach's headspace and the more that his philosophy started to kind of click together, the more I was like, wow, this guy is the perfect foil for these characters. Um, he's he, They're both two of a kind and total opposites. And the sparks certainly fly with those two. When I think about like film noir and like the the stories that like people were telling, I think especially like if we go back to The Godfather in that story, there, uh, like, and, I, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but, uh, uh, but like, yeah, like the main character, like he's come back from his time, like as a soldier, like it just made sort of sense that, like, okay, tonally, we could stick with with crime, or we could tell a different story in like this same world, like we could do a a war comic, like right. at the same time, and I like just organically, it felt like like this is this is cool. Like there's a lot of things that, you know, we could run these two together because it is, it is sort of like a war story and it, it's in the city limits, you know, and mm-hmm. it allowed us to sort of maintain the noir angle of like, okay, we got to solve the mystery or like, Oh, we have to, cause like, I, I think like noir is, it's all about the storytelling, you know? And like, I think that a lot of like great war movies are about the storytelling. It's not just portrayals of battles, you know, like in the way that like a, like a Michael Bay movie kind of is, but it's like, you know, it's about the people who have to go through the most terrifying thing, like imaginable. It's like a fight for, for everything. Right. And so like, it just, it, it made the most sense. And then like, and going like, I think that also going through like the newspaper, you know, like, like looking through the comics, like I think that, um, especially for what we're doing, there's only going to be certain ones that could even like sort of fit in this world and be like something, you know, like, like I, um, there, there are certain stories like, I, like, I don't know, like mother goose and grim, like, I don't know. That's where we could go. Like, <laughs> let's, let's that. Into, I mean, like, I'm, like I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we could like, Oh, it's a, like a, like it's a dog fighting ring. And like grim is like the, the, the baddest dog in the bunch. And the lady is, you heard it here first, Spencer and Locke three, everybody. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, but like, I, I think, I think that, um, like you know, just tonally, I felt like, like the escalation of like, like how we could go from like a crime story to a war story. It just, it felt exciting, especially because it meant that we could up the ante as far as like, okay, like in the first book, there's these sorts of like interactions or these kind of fight scenes. Well, when you have like a trained soldier who is, you know, he's, he's in another, he's in another planet essentially. You know, but like this person is a threat that, you know, that, that these guys just are not prepared for. And yep. yeah, and it, it just it allowed us to play with things, I think, visually, you know, like to keep the story like in the same bounds, but also just expand it to other places. And I, I think that's what makes it work. Right. And I think what makes uh, Roach Riley such a terrifying villain is the fact that, you know, from what I've read of issue one, he seems like a lot of good villains are one step ahead of your protagonist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's very perceptive off the bat. Like, he tends to have Spencer Locke nailed down. And, you know, you mentioned Heath Ledger's Joker, and I always loved his portrayal of the Joker in as much of, like, from the beginning, people mistake him for just being this nut job, but for someone who is clearly damaged, is very perceptive, mm-hmm. and is able to just read people down just 
you know, off the glance. And something I think was what makes the Joker such a great villain, how much their relationship is almost more symbiotic than either of them realize. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got little elements of that, even with, let's say, uh, Roach Riley and, you know, Spencer and Locke, where, mm-hmm. you know, you're thinking to yourself, okay, here's this the soldier who's clearly been, um, who's on like this, you know, one man crusade. And, you know, of course, Spencer and Locke are the guys that are supposed to bring him in. Like, you know, we see them as the good guys. But a lot of what that book dealt with was trauma and how characters dealt with it. And, you know, they both, in that sense, come from kind of similar backgrounds of having to deal with so much trauma. And I think it's, uh, you know, I'm not really sure where the story's going yet, but I think it's a fascinating examination. So what I actually wanted to ask you then, you know, speaking of things like trauma and how these characters are, you know, kind of going through their own personal crises, mm-hmm. you know, Spencer Locke and Roach equally is... How do you find like a way to balance that where you want to tell these characters stories, but not do it in a way where it seems like, you know, for lack of a better term, like they're almost like you're like glorifying that. We don't want to ex- be exploitive. Uh, and, and that's something that George and I, we, 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 we talk about pretty frequently. Um, that's something that I'm always trying to keep my eye on is we want to, we want to push the envelope, but only as far as we can justify it. And, uh, you know, we talked about that a lot with our first volume. I think in certain ways, our, our second volume, I don't think some of the brutality that Roach goes through, I, I'm not sure if it if it's more harrowing than Spencer and Locke's, but it's pretty, it's pretty tough still. And, you know, I think ultimately you just have to look at these characters with some empathy and you have to uh, really just try to flesh them out as much as you can to make them three as three-dimensional as possible. Um, I think when you're able to sort of give characters their own perspectives and points of view and opinions and their sense of humor, that goes a long way towards justifying choices that you make, even if they're, uh, you know, going about as far to the edge of good taste as you can get away with. Um, but I think also just, you know, the ridiculousness of our concept and sort of the, the sense of humor we're able to throw in there, uh, especially with our flashbacks. Um, it's kind of like an escape valve a little bit. Uh, it right. sort of decreases the pressure and the oppressiveness a little bit of the series because we're able to sort of uh, poke a little fun, have a little bit of levity, show some of these characters in their past when things were uh, a little less dark and complicated. And I, I think that's our signature cocktail. We're sort of able to uh, release the pressure a little bit when things are getting a little too dark. But at the same time, this sequel, uh, you know, this is our Empire Strikes Back. Uh, This is our Godfather Part 2. Things do get darker here. And Spencer and Locke, they're not going to come out of this without a cost. If you do anything to Locke, I swear, (laughs) (laughs) you were never allowed back on this podcast. He's like anyone but Locke. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyone but Locke. You know, we've had a plan. We've had a plan for these guys uh, for a few years now, uh, which is kind of crazy to say because you know, for a, a significant portion of time, it wasn't clear if we were ever going to get to do a, a sequel to this. To be honest, Volume Two I think is better than our first. There's a trajectory for these characters that I'm really excited for, for readers to follow us on. What really strikes me is the confidence in both the artwork and the writing and just the presentation. Because, you know, like you said, there was definitely an uncertainty as to whether or not this would work. But now that you've already gotten past that first hurdle, mm-hmm. it's like there's nowhere to go but up with it. So. Well, it's nice of you to say. I can see so many ways we can go down from here. But thank you for saying that. <laughs> no, I just <laughs> I know that sounds terrible. But what I mean is... <laughs> that i don't know me maybe i'm just weird but i mean when i first heard about it i'm like well hell yeah i want to read that who would yeah (laughs) but sure i'm I'm sure part of it was to be like well let's see if these guys can stick the landing (laughs) and it did like i said i was generally surprised and again it's no surprise that action lab danger zone like it makes sense because that's kind of a a story that you know i feel like that's a good home to have yeah 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 absolutely well you know there are a lot of publishers that would have you know chickened out about our first volume they would have uh, had a lot of edits a lot of changes a lot of notes and we're already doing a high wire act like we we really did not need anybody pushing or pulling us in any direction we were already sort of kind of you know had a very thin margin of error to begin with and uh, that's the beauty of publishing through a place like action lab is they really trust their creators they are very hands-off they 
trust you to tell the story that you pitch them and uh, they give you the latitude to kind of call your own shots. And uh, especially, uh, you know, on my end, you know, Spencer Lonk was my first book and that sort of latitude and trust was hugely important. Um, You know, I think with a lot of, you could call it interference or oversight, um, (laughs) you know, this, this, this book would have had some major issues to it. And, um, you know, Action Lab has been nothing but supportive uh, about us. You know, we've, they've let us, uh, you know, table with them at major cons like San Diego and New York. And we couldn't be happier with the, with the publisher. And it was great that they saw the potential in the series enough to pretty quickly ask, hey, are you, you guys have a, a follow-up planned? If, if not, <laughs> He's like, do I? About it. I was like, I, I remember sitting Brian Seaton down, I think it was at WonderCon last year. Um, or no, I guess it was, it might've been the year before that. And he was telling me, Oh, you know, do you guys have any ideas for a follow-up? And I sat him down and I said, let me tell you. And I think I talked his ear off for about 45 minutes saying, this is what we're going to do. This, 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 and this. And he just kind of stared and it was like, <laughs> yeah, do that, do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, but we're excited. We've got a few more curveballs that I did not tell Brian about. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple audibles that we wound up calling, you know, kind of at the last minute, but I think really have elevated the series, you know, without giving too much away. One of the toughest readers I know said that our third issue was, uh, he thought it was the best thing that I've ever written. And um, I'm going to hold them to it. So, fingers crossed. Nice. Something I do like about this story is also just how it plays out even amongst you and George where it's like you're almost your own buddy cop team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, it's funny. Like He's now, the sassy cop. I'm the rule-following cop. No, go ahead. Right? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like, I think it's now hearing you two talk about this book and knowing what I know from the story so far, I can now see you two kind of going through the same adventures as, like, you know, these... <laughs> These two creators on the edge, they've got this plan, but no one thinks it's going to work, but they're going to go through it anyway. And it's like, screw the law. We've got badges. We're going to start kicking down doors, start, you know, roughing up people. We're going to get to the bottom of this and we're going to do it our way. And I think that's kind of awesome. So now we just need a story of you two creating this, mm-hmm. <laughs> but as gritty, as hard hitting as Mr. Locking self. Turn in oh. your gun. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hand, it's like hand in your pen. I was like, well, how am I supposed to draw? I don't know. You're off the case. Hand yeah. in your keyboard. You're <laughs> off. You're off. You're done. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just start writing things in a notepad in the middle of the night on the streets. But like they can never take. They, I'll always, I'll always fight crime through writing. The real, the real question though is which one of us is imaginary? Oh snap! <laughs> it's definitely me. It's definitely. <laughs> We have like a fight club scenario where it's like it's like oh one of one of us is imaginary but we're fighting over who gets to have the body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna write this down. Spencer and Lock Volume Three. All right. I was gonna say yeah. After everything, we should just say Spencer and Lock Volume Three, so that way it's binding. No one could take that. I didn't know we were doing a public brainstorming session, but all right, that's fine. Who I mean, am I to say no to inspiration? I mean, like, <laughs> I, I guess we could at some point, like, if it, we could put, like, us in as, like, oh, here's, like, this other sort of buddy cop scenario where it's like, oh, here's these two weirdos, like, as, like, side characters. Mm-hmm. But I I kind of already drew us having already set occupations in, in the first volume. I don't yeah, know if we found that. So I, I, don't, I don't know how... Uh, <laughs> to be fair, there was something I missed in the coloring that kind of tripped that up a little, even though I was telling George, like, we should do this. But um, uh, eagle-eyed readers should be able to to spot that in uh, issue three of our first arc. Uh, uh, was, wait, what? Oh, issue two. Right. Sorry. Yeah. No. Yeah. Sorry. I'm thinking different things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that was – I didn't even notice that George did that until, like, the trade came out. I'll just let you tell the story, but it was one of those things I probably sat and laughed for like 10 minutes after I, after he told me what he had done. Okay. This is good. I need to hear this. I don't remember like what prompted it, but like, you, you know how in the old, like Stan Lee comics, it'd be like, Oh, like sassy Stan Lee and, you know, jumping Jack Kirby, like doing that kind of thing. Like for right. the credits in, in issue two, I was like, well, we should do something like that. But like <laughs> the issue takes place mostly in a strip club. So 
there is a like I, I, I guess it, it's I can just go ahead and say it when they're standing in front of the strip club like there are these like posters of like some of the dancers that are are within like on the wall and like right. like three of them are I no I did I do four I think I did but yeah it's it's us it's me David Jason and I think Collins in there too but like. Like I, I think I, I think I have like tassels on. It's like it, it was. It's, it's like us if we were like strippers at at that strip club. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, it was. I I, I I'm trying to find it now, but I uh, I feel like it was like it was jiggling Jason. I think what, what it was. I think I was the uh, one because that's probably closer. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I think I was just dancing, David. I think, uh, thankfully, you were you were merciful with me. I, I think uh, I you like twerking or something, like <laughs> like, like popping pippos. Yeah, I, the, I, yeah, I, I had like, I, nipple tassels on or something. Like I, was, I, I looked at pencils. I looked at inks. I looked at colors and lettering. I promoted this book. I went through interviews. I went to cons. Um, didn't see any of it. No, I'm okay. I'm, I have it right now. I'm dainty David Pepos and I am twerking it. Uh, <laughs> As you and, should. Yeah. And then, yeah, George, we got Jiggly George. That's what I'm seeing right now, but I, I'm, I'm sure Jason's hiding in the trash can or something somewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just. I think I, yeah. I think I probably felt bad about like, you know, like <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay, it's probably okay to, to assume that yeah. and I are doing it, but I was probably like, mm, with, with, with Jason and Colin, like they're probably, they're, they're probably too dignified. I didn't want them to be mad at me. So I was like, but I, I was okay with David being mad at me. So I've been yeah. <laughs> George didn't know that anybody on this team they're if they're working with me, they're probably not that dignified. <laughs> see i always thought of you two would be cool like have you like side characters like what is it in like bad boys have like the other two detectives or um what is it um vargas and reyes i think you know the two that are they're always kind of going back and forth with the thing is is that if we ever do a reprint of the trade we've got a significant number of the trades so i don't know if or when that's ever going to happen but this was an idea that george and i talked about for issue three that due to a color error on my part we did not really execute but um, at the very beginning of the third issue, um, Locke, without giving too much away, is strapped down to a table. Uh, he's injected with unknown chemicals, and he's left to die. Um, unfortunately for the two henchmen who come to collect his body, he's not quite dead yet. And um, something that, that George and I we discussed, I had said, it should be us. We should be the henchmen <laughs> that get brutally murdered um, because it's a super nerdy death of the author joke. Yes, due to a coloring error on my part, I did not actually, like, I forgot about it by the time we got the art in. And I was just like, oh, okay, what, whatever, it's just normal henchmen. I don't remember that. Like, I, I don't think those, because I think those guys. <laughs> oh, you forgot too, that's funny. Well, I think one of those guys has dreadlocks. I'm like, I don't think, I don't think either of us has dreadlocks. Like, so, yeah. uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe David has dreadlocks. But, like, I think aside from the, the stripper thing, I don't think I've drawn us in the in the story yet so like oh so we, we still got opportunities yeah well, uh, although i do have friends who are like hey george will you draw me as a henchman getting murdered in spencer and lock and i'm like yeah oh, okay if the, if that's your if that's your that's your perfect job, like that's perfect do you want to get murdered in spencer and lock are you kidding me that is like the greatest contest ever enter to win a chance to get brutally murdered in spencer and lock I'm writing this down. You know what? If we get a volume three, I'll I'll do it. I, I will put out a contest saying, who wants to get murdered by Spencer and Locke? <laughs> All right. So here's what we got to do, though. Pre-orders are coming up, so we should let everybody know um, about the pre-order. So definitely go ahead and pre-order this. Get as many copies as you can, because now that this needs to be a thing now. <laughs> We're going to have three covers for all four issues. And um, yeah, the pre-order codes for uh, our first issue, we have George's main cover. Uh, that's Feb 19-1309. Then we have a, a variant cover from Monhouse. It's beautiful. Um, he's doing uh, variant covers for us again. That's uh, Feb 19-1310. And then uh, I, I'm really excited about this. Uh, we, we didn't have time to have Joe Mulvey do variant covers for all four issues last round. Uh, we have him doing four covers this arc, and they're all terrific. We have a red, white, and blue variant coming from him. It's uh, Feb uh, 19, 13, 11. 
but I got to tell you, like George, Bond, and Joe, like they just, it was like a free for all at who was going to one up each other in terms of the covers. And boy, they are, ugh, they are stunning. Just wait until you see um, George's second issue cover. That That's probably my favorite of the whole run. It's going to make people uh, start to wonder what's going to happen next. Either three or four is, is my favorite like three is really good too. I love and four. They're all great. Yeah, I think like three was probably the most like dynamic one. But I feel like based on um, some of the stuff that like happens throughout volume two, I wanted this to really have like a lot of sort of imagery and a lot of symbolism in it. And like I remember when I was messaging like David for thumbnails, <laughs> like hey David, I want to try this. It goes into stuff that we've talked about here, and I don't want to I don't want to give too many spoilers, but like. I wanted to use like a lot of symbolism and stuff. And I wanted the cover to be like a part of, of that in some ways. And so like, I think that uh, the fourth cover has probably the most symbolism in it, but I also just like the third one was just like really fun to draw. I, I feel like the third one, I mean, we were talking about sort of genre mashups and um, yeah, that's, that's the one where we get to throw in a whole bunch of nods to a whole bunch of different genres in that one. And it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. I think. I know you guys have been teasing a lot of like the later issues, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes. This really feels like this can continue even past like a volume three because there's so much room for these characters to go through some like pretty amazing places. Thank you. You know, so much of it is, you know, just making sure that our our characters have weight and that they have consequences. Um, I think it's so easy to kind of get wrapped up in the monthly schedule where you have to have that illusion of change, where you kind of have the status quo, a slight alteration back to the status quo. And um, that's not something we wanted to do with Spencer and Locke. Uh, We wanted their adventures to have consequences and fallout and weight and, uh, you know, the that's that's something that we're going to be committed to doing um, as long as we uh, continue with this series. And uh, so when I say that Spencer and Locke are never going to be the same, you know, I mean it. I, I, I kind of wanted to say this like before, but like, I think that um, for me, I don't want to be drawing boring stuff. You know, like I feel like there's so many, there's so many stories out there that are just sort of the same thing, like over and over and over. Like mm-hmm. I think what what I want to do is even even if like even if we did end up in comic book jail, which like I've got a spoon, I'll tunnel my way out. Like <laughs> I want to spend my career like mining for new ideas or taking things that like are are that exist and then try to like take my own spin on them and make them different. You know, and I don't want anybody to like read something I, I've done and just be like. Eh, or have no feelings. Like I either want to make them mad or I want to make them like cry. Like like I, I feel I feel like <laughs> with, and with Spencer and Locke, you know, like I think that you know we we have the room to do that and to and to make the best comics that we can make. You know, yep. like like to like put in like as much like art and story and symbolism and all this stuff. I think especially in a world today where like we're everybody is just bombarded with things to do. There's games, there's movies, there's TV. You know, like I can I can open my phone and I can watch a movie and also read comics and all that stuff. And we are in a sea of of media. And I think that if we can make something that holds people's attention and like makes moves them and shows them like sort of the strength of what our medium can do, then like that's the work I want to I want to make. I want to spend my time working on stuff that like is going to move people no matter what. Yeah, I mean, George hit it on the head. I mean, my favorite play is uh, Neil Abutes' The Shape of Things. and They talk about how you can love it or you can hate it, but apathy is the only unacceptable response. That's sort of, I think, the ethos that we're going with and why we're trying to take such big swings is, you know, like George said, um, there's there's hundreds of comics out there that you can read. We want to make sure that we give readers the most bang for their buck. I know we've had readers ask us, why four issues? It's because we want no fat. Uh, we want to make sure that you guys feel satisfied with every single issue. And uh, yeah, we want you to feel something. And I, 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 I'm really confident that I, I think people will. I've read five issue comics that were like actually like 20 issues. Like, I think that that would be the worst thing for, for us would be to like artificially elongate something. I think that mm-hmm. like, you know, if, if we can, if we can give you like a four issue, like meal, instead of giving you like fast food every, you know, every day, like I think that ultimately we're artists, 
you know, we're entertainers. We want to craft something. We don't want to just like, you know, just like machine, like stamp it out and then have it have no soul. I think that the reason people want us to come back for a second one and why it's been doing as well as it has is because there is a soul here. It takes time to develop that, you know, and like how many stories can you think of that have a great opening and then just like, I mean, there, there is a reason why people say that the second movie of any trilogy mm-hmm. is usually the worst, but like, like, and, and that, that is the case for some franchises, but then there are some where it's like Empire Strikes Back or The Dark Knight, where it's like the sequel supersedes the original. You know, it it takes what was built and then it builds on top of that. And like nowadays we have a shifting of sort of that paradigm where now people think of the second movie as being the one where it's like, oh, this is where it really gets going. You know, but um, like but when I was younger, like I remember people going like, oh, the second movie in any trilogy is usually the weak one. Now, I think people are saying like, okay, well, you know, let's let's craft something. And I think that's that's what we want to do. Like whether people sort of enjoy the elevator pitch of it. You know, I think that w- whether you enjoy that or don't, I think that there's something still here for, for people, you know, because we're writing a story about, about people. And Panthers. <laughs> and <Yeah>. Panthers. <laughs> it's like people and Panthers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's a matter of seeing it as two, maybe like a stronger story, but it's not necessarily like it takes anything away from the first story. It just right. gives you something different that maybe you didn't get the first time it's a different flavor but it's also a continuation um and and that's part of the reason why i was talking so much about consequences is i think that's a good way to tie these stories together organically but not in a way that feels particularly slavish that you need to know every you know uh every detail from the first arc just sort of the broad strokes but by having these sequels we're able to sort of have a unique spin on each story while still bringing that quality that people liked about the first. And um, it's a tricky balance to do, but we're really blessed with some wonderful characters that really um, have a lot of, of emotional material to mine. And like George said, when you have the emotion, um, the rest falls into, in, into place. Um, the emotion is what's kind of the highest priority for us. And, and that's been the most fun uh, to write. And it's been the most fun to watch George draw. <laughs> yeah, I need to, yeah, I, I I need to get like a stream thing going because like I think that if people could see like my face as I'm working on some of these, some especially like in in because um like I, I've talked about this before, but like David will find a way to like like I, I don't know. I think that he's he's got like a power to like see into my mind and be like, okay, what has George never drawn before? <laughs> What can I get him to draw this time? How can I work that in? Because like it, it was that way with the chase scene in the in the first arc mm-hmm. you know like where it's like okay i've never like i'm not particularly strong at drawing cars but like it, it was like okay well now 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 you gotta draw them what are you gonna do are you gonna <laughs> are, you, are you gonna hide the cars and stuff or are you, you know like are you gonna find shortcuts or are you gonna find a way to like actually like tackle it and that was fun like now drawing cars is like it's like okay, yeah, like this, like I, I sort of, well, I'm, I'm still practicing and learning. I'm, I'm not the Sean Murphy of cars yet, but like, you know, I'm, I'm getting there. But like in volume two, uh, David was like, okay, well, if he did that, well, now I can. Now, how, how do you like this one? I'm like, oh. <laughs> I, yep. you know, never thought that before. <laughs> it, and 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 of course, I, I, you know, he, he draws it. I'm like, oh, he must have drawn this a million times. This looks great. Uh, <laughs> Not now, necessarily, but hey, still, it's it's one of those things that George is, is is he's an artist artist. He's he's a wonderful collaborator, and it's in part because I can dare him to do anything, and he like <laughs> never shows me like the slightest fear. Like he's just like, yeah, I can do that. And I was like, oh, when I first spoke with him, um, I said, look, I was I, I want to do flashbacks in in sort of that Bill Watterson style. Um, if you don't want to do it, let me know. Like I was originally thinking I'd have to hire two artists and immediately he was like, no, I got this. And I was like, you do. And he's like, Oh yeah, 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 totally. And then he showed me the pages like, Oh, he's got it. He's really got it. Like that's, that's superb. It was really important to like make those, those scenes feel like I I drew them. Cause like I've, I've read books where, you know, like they'll have like, Oh, this part was drawn by this artist and this part was drawn. And it just, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel organic. It feels more like there was a time crunch and they needed to split this, this issue up into parts. 
but like I didn't want that feeling with with this book. And so like I, I think it was important to like to spend time studying and like try to figure out like okay, like when 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 this artist was doing this, you know, like what were they trying to convey? Even down to like tools, you know, like when it came to drawing like the um the Roach Riley flashback scenes, I would switch up my tools because I was like looking at the Beetle Bailey comics like I was trying to envision like what kind of tool was Mort Walker using here, you know, like what, like what, what was he conveying with this line? And so, you know, it's like entering into a different headspace that like, I kind of enjoy, like, I, I like, I like the sort of um, the, the Zen of art supplies and figuring out like how each one has like a different um, storytelling uh, use like it I, I remember at the start I, I actually was like hey David uh could I like watercolor the flash <laughs> it's like because I, I I wanted to try to capture like that sort of Bill Watterson watercolor look but like it made it made more sense to like actually have more options available in case my watercolors turned out terrible which I which I totally understood that was <laughs> definitely the right call I did a comic for my master's where it was a detective who ends up in like a Lovecraftian like underworld. And in order to convey that, I had the book rotate. Everything that takes place on Earth was done in markers. And everything that, uh, as soon as the the detective ends up in the Lovecraft world, like the comic is painted in, in watercolor because I wanted the, I didn't want to have to say like, oh, and then he won, he, then the detective found themselves in the Lovecraft dimension. No, like you can see it, like the rendering is different and the colors are different. Like I, I, I like when the, the art can tell the story as much as the writing does. And like, I think that like, th that's what I wanted to do with Spencer and Locke as well. Like I didn't want to just um, like sort of di take dictation as far as like, just like drawing what the, what the script says. Like I wanted to interpret it and sort of make it into, you know, like something that was crafted, like, like painstakingly like together. And this wasn't just sort of tossed together. Right. George's art style was so deliberate and, Having had my background as a, as a comics critic and coming from, uh, I was an editorial intern at DC. It was like getting a, a master's education, uh, talking with George about sort of okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna stack up uh, our, our panels? Which panels are gonna be the most important for the page? What's the the rhythm we're gonna get into? Or talking with our colorist Jason Smith, uh, working with him about all right, what's the palette gonna be? How is this gonna look different? from our first arc, which each issue we kind of wanted to have a little bit of a power color or a power palette to sort of differentiate uh, the tone and the vibe and the energy. Um, and, and you know, with, with Colin, uh, our letterer, um, you know, just figuring out where's the best placement for these things. How are we going to um, differentiate uh, in terms of our captions to, to, to show off different voices for different characters? Uh, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that uh, we're going to be getting into more people's heads and sort of figuring out how do we portray their voices. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, but I think the word deliberate is is the word I would use. Um, there are a lot of conscious choices made, sometimes a little bit of trial and error, but it was, it we, you know, we really tried to look at every detail to make sure that we were making as many choices towards telling a, a certain conveying a certain mood and tone as possible thank you both for taking the time out and sharing your thoughts with me and again everything that you heard here spencer lock three <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having us we really appreciate it and yeah fans just pre-order volume two um you know that'll be what uh determines if we get a volume three and i i really think you guys are gonna love it Right. And I also just want to point out in general, though, to piggyback off of that is just pre-ordering in general, especially for indie books, is so very important. Yes. But when comic shop owners know that there is a demand for a particular book, you know, it shows that there is also a market for it. And that, in turn, of course, just helps the creators out. Yes. You know, whether they wrote it, drew it, inked it, lettered it, it doesn't matter. Those pre-orders mean so much, and they're very important as far as getting not only those books out, but more books like it. Yes. So, again, definitely make sure you pre-order that and just pre-order your comics in general. And actually, I think I said this a while ago on another episode, like, pre-order your damn books, all right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it helps us out tremendously. So, thank you, guys. Um, you know, And thank you to everyone who pre-ordered our first volume. Do it again, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have some more stories to show you. I also want to like thank our readers, but also tell them that like 
uh, I'm gonna try to make you cry, and I'm I'm not I'm not sorry for it. But um, <laughs> you, I'm, I'm just letting you know. Spencer Lock Two. There will be tears. You already had me crying after the first one, so you know what? Good. Again, Good. <laughs> if something happens to Lock, we're done. We we feed on your tears. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and it tastes delicious. Yes, they're amazing. They give us they give us inspiration and strength. That is uh, probably the best. Like like I've had people like like come up to me and be like, "Hey, this book you wrote, it made me cry." And that that is the best compliment I think for anything. Like that shows that like you know the 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 world that we wrote was real for you. You know, and like it it meant something to you. Like beyond just. Hey, look, you know, like, hey, here's drawings of a character that you like, you know, like, like uh, how many movies can you say like, oh, this movie made me cry, you know, and like, and, and especially when it's like a silly movie, like if a silly movie can, you know, like, even like, like Pixar movies, like they, like the upfront, they, they like, like the first thing they do is they attack your emotions, like, because they want that they want people to cry and like, cause they know how important it is to get people invested. And if people are invested enough to feel like, like strong emotions for, for these characters, then like, that is the, that is the best compliment that, that I think that we can get. I'm going to make you cry, but it's probably not going to be on purpose. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> well, but like, but no, it's no D- David, like, I, I, like, I, I just oh, meant oh. general, my general life. I mean, I'm definitely going to make you cry on purpose because of this book. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought we were talking about our personal lives. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, well, D- David does make me cry like on, on the daily, but like, <laughs> yeah, comics. I, w- I want to make you cry. Please let everybody know where they can uh, find out more about the both of you. So if there's any other like sites or social networking uh, handles you want to throw out real quick, let them fly. My name is Jorge Santiago Jr. You can find my website at uh, J-O-R-G-E-S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O-J-R.com. That has links to all my social media stuff, my Instagram, my Twitter, my Tumblr. Um, it's like, yeah, if, if you want to see what I'm up to, I try to post there regularly, but I'm, I'm always on social media trying to like post up the artwork that I'm doing. But uh, yeah, that, that's a good hub to, to begin with. Um, and as far as the book is concerned, uh, you can follow it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's just Spencer and Locke. It's just one word spelled out. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just Peposti. It's my last name and first initial. That'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue.